Welcome to Dojo Discussions. I'm your host, J.M. Smith, and the purpose of this podcast series is to provide answers to commonly asked questions that listeners send in. We do this via Facebook live stream, and then the audio is pulled and compiled and added to our podcast. So I hope you enjoy it. If you have questions on anything related to God, the Bible, faith, culture, um, ethical issues, politics, anything like that, anything you've ever just wondered about, go to www.discipledojo.org and you can submit questions through the contact page there. Without further ado, let's get into this session. We're going to talk about the question today that somebody sent in. This was actually a pastor uh, who works with high school students. And they said uh, the question was around, what does the Bible have to say about gender identity, gender fluidity? Um, and, and this spills into the concept of gender and sexuality. But but I want to separate those two things. This is This is not a question about sexual identity or sexual orientation. We're not going to talk about that today. We may talk about that at some point, but we talk about that on the Disciple Dojo teaching series to know and be known, forming a thoughtful Christian sexual ethic. That's actually available on the Disciple Dojo website as a video series. So we spend a whole course talking about biblical sexuality, but this question is more about gender identity and the concept of gender. Our culture right now, that's a very hot-button issue. The, um, the, some people say LGBT lobby, but I, those are very different things. L, G, and B are very different than T. Uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual, is very, it's a different thing than, than the T, trans community. And so they all get lumped in for the sake of a, you know, civil rights movements or just as a broad general, you know, LGBTQQIA, kind of as a catch-all category. But one or, or LG and B are about sexual preference. T is not. T is about gender self-perception, gender identity. And so those, we need to, I think we need to be careful in lumping those all together. Because they're very different issues, and they're very different concerns. And not everybody, even in the LGBT movement, agrees with everybody else uh, on the importance of the different acronyms or the different letters, and on what a proper solution would be to cultural problems where those things intersect. So we, we, we need better thinking in our culture, always. That's just something that we always need in the church, outside of the church, in culture, in politics, in entertainment, less sloganeering and more thoughtful discussion is what we need. And so I want to try to do that today. I want to try to give some thoughtful dialogue or some thoughtful um, insights into how if you are a person who puts any stock in the scriptural authority, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, if you're not a Christian but you just want to understand where are Christians coming from in this discussion, uh, this is what I want to unpack a little bit today. The, the passage that whenever you talk about um, uh, uh, trans, I'm just going to use the word trans. There's some people used to say transsexual. Some people used to say trans or now say transgender. Uh, some people have said transvestite, but that just has to do with what you wear. And so there's no real term. Every term's going to change about every 10 years. So I'm just going to use the word trans as a catch-all for people who have a gender identity, gender dysphoria, the feeling of my body is this, 
but I feel inwardly this. So that's the term we're going to use. Whether pre-op, post-op, any any of those things, they're going to be different. Uh, for for any per, for different people have different stories, and so you don't want to flatten everything out and say there's one story, there's one experience that all of the trans community, and it's not, it's not the case. And so that's that's how I want to. I'm saying all this by way of caveats, not to just belabor the point, but because on issues that are culturally complex, we need to have nuanced and precise thinking, not sloganeering, not simplistic answers, but we need to think with precision and we need to think with respect. And because I know on my friends list, I have transgender individuals. I have people who are full bearers of the image of God, who were born one sex and live their life now as the other sex. And I'm glad. I'm glad I have them on my timeline and on my friends list. And I want to be speaking with them in mind as well. This is not just preaching to people who already believe or speaking to people who already believe, but this is reaching across, hopefully, uh, all kinds of lines of culture and gender and sexuality and identity and everything because it's kind of a mess right now in our society. And people don't know how to think. They're told what to think. Preachers, politicians, pundits, celebrities, musicians, they'll tell you what to think. And they'll cancel you if you don't think what they think you should think. I hate that approach. I think that's not only immature, I think it's unethical. Uh, and I think it's, it's a lack of the inability to engage in thoughtful dialogue. And so I never want to model that. Um, you're always free to have a disagreement, to have different views, to share those views. As long as you're not abusive, spammy, or personally attacking somebody else's character needlessly, then you're free to share any views you have at any time on anything I post. That's just the way I do it. Not every ministry, not every teacher does it that way, but I thoroughly believe in modeling excellent behavior when it comes to disagreeing and disagreeing with integrity. So we're going to look at the, the, we're going to talk about gender identity and I'm going to kind of do it from the way most people start the discussion. Okay. So most people start the discussion about LGBT. Well, okay. We're going to break off the LGB part. All right. We're going to break that aside and we're just going to look at T where most people jump to when they start talking about T is they pull the Bible out. And they go to Deuteronomy 22, and they read Deuteronomy 22.5, A woman must not wear man's clothing, nor a man wear woman's clothing, for the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. Case closed. You're detestable, and the text uses the word abomination, if it's a King James, that older word that NIV translates as detest. And so that's it. Open shut. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Uh, well, does it really settle it? I don't know. There's a couple of things to keep in mind. First of all, Deuteronomy, this passage itself, the wording is interesting in it. The wording is not as straightforward as it appears. Uh, the wording in Hebrew, it says a woman must not wear, and it doesn't use the general word man, which is ish in Hebrew. It uses this word geber. And geber is like, I don't know, we would almost say manly man or like masculine. Geber is the, the related to the word gabor, which, which means warrior. And so it's not the term for man. It's not even the term for male, which is zakar. Uh, it's this unique term. And it almost has a sense of like fighting man or manly man or like, you know, butch, <laughs> something like that. Uh, so that's one thing to keep in mind is it says a woman must not. And it doesn't say NIV actually gets this wrong. 
Uh, NIV says a woman must, must not wear men's clothing, but the word is not clothing. It's, it's kali, and it means utensil, vessel, implement, tool. It can mean anything from like spoons that you use in your house to tools that you use to get a job done uh, to, to plates or, or cups. or it, it, has a, it means vessel, implement. So the woman, what's being prohibited here is for women to, t- to use the implement of a geber, to use the kali of a geber, to use the uh, whatever that means. The, the tools or the object or the, or the, it could have to do with something that you wear, but it's not limited to that, of a geber, of a, of a manly man, a fighting man almost. That's what it's prohibiting women from doing. And then the flip side to the man is, and nor a man, and it does use the word man there, wear women's clothing. And it uses the word that means outer garment. Uh, it, it uses the word that means the thing that the woman would wrap herself in, and which has to do with identity. Your garment in the ancient Near East had to do with your identity. Your garment had to do with who you were and your standing in society. And it was, it was, it was, there's a lot more. Do a study sometime through the Bible on garment. There's a lot more uh, symbolism in your garment. It was like your identity. And so this verse, now this verse in Deuteronomy is just, it, it comes right between verses about caring for animals. There's a verse before it about caring for animals. There's a verse after it about caring for animals. And then right in the middle is this verse. And that's how Deuteronomy and Exodus, to some degree, the laws are given in the Old Testament. They don't follow a perfectly flowing order. They're arranged sometimes haphazardly, we think at least, or it seems somewhat haphazardly. Um, But it's not just nice, neat themes. Sometimes they're just standalone. Like the, the, the law, you should not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. That's stuck between laws about family relationships. And then all of a sudden there's a law about agricultural practices right in the middle. And part of this is because the Hebrew law, the Torah, was meant to guide all of Israel's daily life. And it, there weren't these delineations of ceremonial, civil, religious life, uh, you know, agricultural practices. They weren't neatly chopped up that way. There was a little bit of each sprinkled in with the others. And so in this case, context around it doesn't give us a ton of what to go on, but we just get this law in Deuteronomy that Israel, under the covenant, was to live in certain ways. And one of those ways was women were not to take to use the kali, the vessels, of a geber, a, a man. And men were not to wear the garment of a woman. That's what the law says in its context. Now, Rabbis throughout the years took different views on this. Uh, you know, go to Torah.com, thetorah.com if you want to see an article on this, and you can just Google the prohibition of cross-dressing, and it'll come up in there. Um, you'll get the different examples. So here's the way some Hebrew uh, rabbis over the years have looked at it. Rashi, the famous Rabbi Rashi, he said that this law is prohibiting uh, women from wearing or, 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 or from participating or from making themselves become men and men doing the same with women so that she looks like a man so that she can mingle among men for this would only be for the purpose of fornication or adultery. Rashi took the approach that this verse is prohibiting women and men by implication from entering into or or, or taking upon themselves the identity of the other sex in order to have access to places where the other sex is exclusively in order to involve engage in behavior, whether voyeurism, whether fornication, whether adultery. 
So the view that, that Rashi, one of the medieval rabbis, was advocating, it seems, would be like the equivalent would be don't dress up like a woman in order to sneak into a woman's bathroom and spy on women or to be among women in a place where men aren't prohibited so that you can engage in illicit activities among the women. So his view was that this was a prohibition against uh, infiltrating the space through subterfuge, through disguise, entering in the space for women. Now, in honor and shame cultures, ancient Near East and even today in the Middle East, in parts of Africa, in parts of Asia, in modern day honor and shame cultures, there is a strong delineation between women's space and men's space, and they are not allowed to mix. Even in countries where there are relatively speaking, equal rights for men and women, it will still be common. If you go to church in India, for instance, most churches in India, the men sit on one side, the women sit on the other side. That's how it is in most mosques. That's how it is among, a, and that's, that's just a human thing. Men and women have separated over gender and sex. And, you know, there's women's sports. There's men's sports. There are some sports that are co-ed, but for the most part, they're kept separate. Women's restrooms, that's a big one in our culture. Bathroom bills, you know, what facilities can you use? Well, this is not just a North American thing. This goes back to ancient times. There were certain things that were seen as this is the realm of women, this is the realm of men, and we, need, we don't let there be intermingling because of impropriety, because of sexuality, because of privacy, because of whatever. Different cultures have different reasons. So that's, Rashi took that view, um, and there was... Um, Obviously, with any rabbinic view, there's debate over the years, but that was one view. Maimonides, uh, Moses Maimonides, he took the view that the behavior being described in Deuteronomy was actually targeted towards idolatry. He quotes some medieval rituals that involved in, in the European culture that involved uh, worshiping at pagan temples. And so he says, for instance, you will find in the book of Tumtum, which is a, a, a pagan ritual book that he's referring to, the commandment that a man should put on a woman's dyed garment when standing before Venus, and that a woman should put on the cuirass and the arms when standing before Mars. So he's kind of in his reflecting on his greater pagan culture and saying women or men, when they wanted to approach and give worship to Venus, would participate in some type of cross, what we would call cross-dressing in order to be, uh, to show, who knows, like, um, affinity for Venus or honor for Venus or whatever. And women likewise would, would put on the implements of Mar to show honor to Mars, the god of war. And, and so Maimonides took the approach that this has to do with putting on the garment, a woman's garment, if you're a man, in order to, to participate in some type of pagan worship, or taking up the man's implements, if you're a woman, in order to participate in some kind of pagan worship. So for Rashi, it was to keep the sexes separate so that there's no hanky-panky going on. For Maimonides, it had to do with worship. It had to do with, with pagan settings and keeping them delineated. And then another medieval rabbi, Abraham Ibn Ezra, uh, he took the view, he said that the meaning behind these commandments and the prohibition is based on the idea that wearing the garments or the vessels ornaments of the other sex would mix things that God had created separate. And this is a big thing. If you've done the Disciple Dojo, if you followed our podcast and you were with us through Exodus, especially Leviticus, you can check the podcast for Leviticus playlist where we spent a year walking through Leviticus. This is a major theme in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that God has certain things that do not mix. 
So he prohibits his people from eating certain type of animals that have mixed attributes of land animals, uh, of ocean animals, um, you know, animals that have a split hoof, but they chew, don't chew the cud or vice versa. There's all these delineations. You don't mix garments of two different types of thread. So you, you don't, cotton polyester blends are not a thing that you'd find in ancient Israel. Um, you don't sow a seed, sow a f one field with two different kinds of seed. You don't try to mate two different kinds of animals together. I mean, even if you could, you, you don't, there, there's a theme in the, in the Torah against mixing different things. And that's what's behind a lot of the food laws, the dietary laws, the, um, the laws of dressing, how you act, how you, how you present yourself. So what uh, Ibn Ezra says is, is that this is another one of those cases where there's men and there's women and the intentional mixing of the two is what God is, has prohibited in the old covenant. And the, kind of any other example that you pull up is going to fall roughly within one of those three. It's to prevent sexual behavior by blending the genders or, or, or dissolving the distinctions between the genders, which are there for protection of the integrity and the privacy of each gender. Or it's against idolatry. In the pagan world, there were idolatrous practices that had to do with mixing or presenting yourself like temple prostitutes present themselves as kind of like what we would call today lady boys. Like in parts of Thailand, there are men who are, are trans and they look like women and they present themselves as women and they do it for prostitution. In the ancient world, prostitution and, and temple worship were usually hand in hand. Um, and then the third view is that, no, this is just a basic command that God gave his people Israel that was like, don't put two types of seed in the same field. Don't try to mate two types of animals together. Don't wear two types of garment threads in one garment. Don't mix the delineation between male and female, between warrior male, Geber, and female identity with her garment. Um, and so I, personally, I don't see a conflict between all three of those. I think that in the world of Israel, in the ancient Near East, all three of those probably had validity. And, and I could see any or all of those in combination. When God gave Israel Torah, there was this, hey, I'm going to separate you from the people around you. You're not going to be like the Egyptians. You're not going to be like the Assyrians. You're not going to be like the Babylonians. You're not going to be like the Hittites. You're not going to be like the Canaanites. You're going to be different. So I could see that aspect of it as well. Um, but also in your worship, you're not going to worship the way that they do the other gods, the pagan gods. You're not going to participate in temple prostitution. You're not going to participate in orgiastic rituals at the high places. Um, you're not going to do those things. And, and if to the extent that what we would call cross-dressing is part of that, you're not going to have any participation in it. And then also I can see the integrity because there are laws that protect the sexual integrity of men and women. And so the exploitation, particular exploitation, you know, women need safe spaces more than men typically because of physical danger. Um, obviously men need times where we can be together with men and just the boys and women need times where they can be without the men with just the girls. That's not a bad thing. It's the uh, the, the, the blurring of that or the taking of away of that, that this law may be written to prohibit. So it could be any or all of those things. The key question though for us is, okay, cool, that's an Old Testament prohibition, but so is not eating shrimp or pork, you know? So is uh, how you celebrate in certain holidays. I mean, 
there are all kinds of laws in the Old Testament that we don't keep anymore. So this one, what's the big deal? And this is where, as Christians, we have to, we do this in the course, in, in To Know and Be Known, the Disciple Dojo Sexual Ethics course. We talk about this. You don't build your sexual ethic off one verse. You don't build your sexual ethic off of an Old Testament passage just because it's in the Bible. You know, you don't, because you'll run into contradictions. You'll run into, uh, uh, like, for instance, I use the example in Bible for the rest of us. There's an Old Testament commandment, don't, ta don't tattoo your body. And people, I've heard, you know, preachers rail against tattoos and, and how they're, it's against the Bible, you know, to have tattoos. And they're usually clean shaven and short cropped hair and respectable, nice looking, middle class, white. Well, right before that verse about not getting a tattoo, right before, the verse before it says, do not shave your beard or trim the sides of your, your, your hair, your sideburns. And so whenever you see somebody railing against tattoos, if they don't have a big bushy beard and curly sideburns, like a Hasidic Jew, you can go, why are you telling me to keep one verse and you're breaking the one right before it? It's picking and choosing. It's arbitrary. So that's what we as Christians can't do, is we can't run to Deuteronomy 22 and say, hi, it says uh, women are not to use the implements of males, and men are not to wear the garments of women. So that means that my kid that likes skinny jeans, I gotta beat it out of him. Oh, my girl that wants to doesn't want to wear a dress and only wants to dress like a boy. No, we can't have that. Like, that's wrong-headed because we don't live under the old covenant anymore. We are not under the Torah. So what we do with the Torah as Christians is we take the principles of Torah. What are the principles in these laws? How do those principles apply? So any of these three principles that we looked at that could be at work in this law, all of those are equally applicable today, even apart from this particular law. Because this law is culture-bound. It's, it's, let's put it this way. If you tie this, like some people have said, well, this just means boys don't wear dresses. Boys don't wear skirts. Because that would be wearing the garment of a woman. Not in Scotland. In Scotland, wearing a, a skirt they call it a kilt. We call it a skirt. It's the same thing. It's a very, very manly thing to wear a kilt in Scotland. So that's culture bound. We can't tie it to our culture and then assume our culture is the norm. Um, we want to be very careful because otherwise you get into undefendable legalism when you start pulling verses out of the Bible, out of their context and out of the broader context. Of scripture itself the whole redemptive story so the principle of this verse Deuteronomy 22 5 would be look don't behave in ways that intentionally would undermine the distinctions between male and female for the purpose of safety for the purpose of protection of sexuality and that has to do with our cultural issue of things like bathroom bills whether we like it or not uh, shower facilities for men and for women, if, if there are, are legitimate needs for space that are only for women, for safety reasons, for privacy reasons, and only for men, for privacy reasons, safety reasons, we have to be extremely careful, extremely careful about providing exceptions to those. Now, I'm not saying we can't ever. Don't hear that. But I'm saying we have to be extremely careful about just saying, ah, pff, use whatever you feel like. Use whatever facility matches your self-identity. Really? Like, your self-identity is more important than the entire population, female or male, sense of safety and privacy? Um, 
rights that start to bump up against other people's rights, that's when we have to do a very careful balancing act. And what I'm worried about when it comes to issues of trans culture, trans activism, or anti-trans activism, or you know, people would say transphobia, is I'm worried that people are too simplistic and, and too uh, uh, looking for a fight to try to work for common solutions that, that are reasonable, that uphold everyone's rights. And I don't know the exact answers to all the questions that people raise, but I know that there, there are good reasons that have nothing to do with bigotry or hate that you would want to keep biological males separate from biological females. There are good reasons for that, and there's nothing to do with hatred or bigotry. Now, there are also good reasons that you as a society, that we as a society, would want to protect people who are experiencing a mental condition, gender dysphoria, that manifests in how they view themselves and their bodies and their safety, and so for their own well-being, they are assuming the role of the other sex for whatever reason, whether it's ethical, whether it's moral or not. Aside from that, it's happening how do we protect those individuals from being harmed? Because people that are trans do suffer much higher suicide rate and much higher assault rates uh, than non-trans individuals. That's a real thing. That's something that really, whatever your views on the ethics of transgenderism or transsexuality, you have to be wanting to protect people from being harmed by other people. That's a basic human decency thing. So, Anytime we're looking at issues like that, I mean, you can say, what does the Bible say about it? And, and the, the Bible says male and female are created for a reason and a purpose, and there is a distinction. So the idea that gender is just a social construct is nonsense. That is absolutely nonsensical. If gender were just a social construct, then you cannot say, well, this person was born with this sex organs, but they have this inward gendered identity. No, if it's a social construct, their inward identity is their identity of the sex that they were born into, whether it conforms or not to social expectations. That's what's, it's a little strange to me when somebody says, you know, gender is, gender is just a social uh, created make-believe. We've all agreed upon it. It's not, it doesn't have any real basis in biology. So there's gender fluidity. Okay, but then if they have a little girl that only plays with trucks or guns or, you know, wants to wear jeans and have short hair, they go, oh, she must be a boy inwardly. Why? Because they associate those things with boys. Do you see the disconnect there? You can't say gender is a social construct, but then if somebody, whatever they like, if it's a little boy and he likes wearing dresses and he likes the color pink, why are you assuming pink and dresses are intrinsically tied to being inwardly female gender. It doesn't make sense. You, you have to have one or the other. There's no solid ethical basis for much transactivism. Now, there is transactivism where somebody says, yes, gender is innate. Gender is linked to our sexuality generally. And there are stereotypical things that are gendered. And I experience or my child experiences a dysphoria because they know that there's a difference between the genders and sexually, phenologically, phenotypically rather, they're this gender, but they experience inwardly a self-identification of the other gender. And, and so what do I do with that? And that's, a, that's somebody who genuinely has gender dysphoria and that's a real thing. 
it's not nearly as common as as many trans activists or or or, or allies of trans activism would have us believe it's incredibly rare but it's a real thing and they're real people and it's a real problem that people wrestle with their whole lives like i feel this with every fiber of my being i feel like i should be a girl but when i look down i see a boy and that creates dissonance and that creates distress and that creates and that's what psychologists say now how do we address that and I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I, I, I'm in ministry. I can't speak to the biological or, or the psychological benefits of different treatments. But what I can say is there's a reason that male and female are held in such high regard according to a, a biblical worldview. And so if we claim to be people who hold to a biblical worldview, then we need to be incredibly careful about transversing those lines because male and femaleness is the image of God. I mean, literally, I'll, I'll show you right in the Bible in Genesis chapter one, when God is creating the first account of creation before it goes back in in Genesis two and gives like a zoomed in approach. The first presentation of humanity in the Bible, when God creates them, he specifically links the image of God to their male and femaleness. This is right at the beginning. So this is what Jesus did. When he was asked a question about divorce by his religious opponents, they wanted to trap him. They asked him a question about the law, about what Moses had commanded. And Jesus said, well, that was given because of your hardness of heart. Let's go back to the beginning because that shows God's intention. And so he talked about marriage from God's intention, male and female, one flesh together and Jesus kind of undercut their whole argument about the loopholes of divorce by saying, God never wanted that to begin with. That was given to you as, as a concession to your sinfulness. But what God really wants, and he pointed them back to Genesis 1. So with the Deuteronomy, with cross-dressing, you can ask, okay, Deuteronomy says don't do this. Um, what, do, what does God really want? What goes back before that? And that's where we come to Genesis 1. It says, God said, let us make Adam, which is human, in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all creatures that move along the ground. So that's what God commanded to happen. Let this happen. And then, in verse 27, so God created man, Adam, in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's the first poem in the Hebrew Bible. God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. If you lay this out as a tripartite Hebrew poem, you find that each section states the same truth in a slightly different way. And what you see is Adam, human, is both him and them. It's individual and it's collective. It is uh, God created Adam, human, in his own image, in the image of God. And then the third line linked to that is male and female. Male and female is part of what reflects the image of God in humanity. Our maleness and our femaleness are in some way unexplained in scripture, but in some way linked 
to what it means to be humans, Adam, created in God's image. So to blur or to erase those gender distinctions or to say they're arbitrary, that they aren't tied to how we are biologically created, is a step that Christians can't take and will never be able to take and still remain faithful to Scripture. Because there is something tied to our gender and our sexual DNA genetic makeup. We have to acknowledge that. And that's not out of a sense of hatefulness or bigotry or anti-science. That's just basic biblical anthropology 101. So when we are having these discussions, when people start to get into, well, what should we do in terms of policy as a result of this? How should we uh, treat kids that decide to change their gender uh, between the school year and they left school as Sally and they come back as Sid or you know, vice versa? How do we handle that? I don't know. That's going to take a lot of juggling how you handle that in particular. I'll say that scripture gives guidelines. So for educators, for policymakers, for for politicians, you need to know that the biblical faith will never be okay with erasing the distinction between male and female. That's a starting point. It's a non-starter. We cannot get on board with something that says it doesn't matter. However, Scripture also speaks to the sexual other, to the sexual gendered minorities, and wants to provide protection and encouragement, especially as you move from Old Testament to New Testament. And that's what we as believers want to do as well. There's genuine care and concern for people who wrestle with issues of dysphoria, with issues of of what we would call, or or individuals that are intersex. They're born with both sexual characteristics. That's a a legitimate thing. And we can't just say, well, I've I've never met that, so it it doesn't matter. No, we need an ethic that is able to handle that. But we have to avoid the simplicities, the oversimplicities. In Scripture, so in the Old Testament, they didn't have concepts like we would think of as uh, somebody who has gender dysphoria or or transgender in the modern sense. It wouldn't really, they they didn't deal with those thought patterns. But what they did have in the ancient Near East were people who were neither, were seen as neither male nor female because of actions either that had occurred to them or because of just how they were born. And they're called eunuchs. Uh, And eunuchs are, you know, we tend to think of eunuchs as a a male who's been castrated. They are a eunuch. Yeah, they are a eunuch, but there were other types of eunuchs as well. Some people were born eunuchs. Jesus mentions this. Matthew 19, Jesus says some people were born eunuchs. Some people have become eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. And he's likely referring to people like the Essenes who were intentionally celibate and did not enter into any sexual relationship. And then he says, and some people have been made eunuchs by men. And he's likely referring to practices where men would be castrated in order for whatever reason. I mean, there's all kinds of horror stories of people being castrated as boys so that their voice never drops so they can sing in choirs and cathedrals and um, or people being castrated so that they're trusted to look after harems of rulers in the ancient world, or whatever the reason. I mean, if you've watched Game of Thrones, you know what a eunuch is. It's various, the ball-headed dude, that's a eunuch. And their fate was seen, for some people, as, as being like, not a well, almost a fate worse than death. They were seen as a dried up, like you're never going to produce children, you're never going to enjoy a sexual relationship, you're just other. You're not male, you're not female, you're a eunuch. And so you're not allowed 
in society or you're relegated to the outskirts of society. They, they were a sexual minority or a gender minority. Scripture does know about that. So the Old Testament, the Old Testament, Isaiah, when he's looking forward to salvation in the later passages, this is Isaiah 56, he, the prophet's seeing uh, God's coming salvation through the Messiah, through the new kingdom, through what's going to be taking place uh, with the arrival of his anointed one, his suffering servant, all of that in the later chapters of Isaiah. Read Isaiah 40 through 66. That is kind of the gospel in advance. And there's this passage, Isaiah 56 says, and it's talking about uh, Israelites being one day restored and renewed and starting to keep God's covenant again because they had broken God's covenant. That's why Isaiah preached judgment. They had broken God's covenant over and over. They desecrated his Sabbaths. They broke his laws. They didn't keep Torah. They rebelled. They committed idolatry and they were ultimately exiled. But after the exile, the prophet looked forward to a time when they would be restored and God would restore them collectively and internally as well. And so God says, Isaiah 56 says, maintain justice, do what is right. My salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, the man who holds fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps his hand from doing any evil. So somebody who keeps Torah, somebody who is a faithful Israelite. This is before the gospel. This is somebody who's coming back to Torah to keep it. And then God says, verse 3, Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Now God breaks down the ethnic lines and says, Hey, don't even, just because you're a foreigner doesn't mean you're excluded from being my people. If you have joined yourself with me, you are going to be my people. And, and Isaiah's already had something to say about that. The Gospels, Romans, um, Corinthians, Revelation, the New Testament will have tons to say about Gentiles becoming part of God's people, but it's already back here in Isaiah. And then look what he says. And let the eunuch not complain, I am only a dried up tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me, who hold fast to my covenant, the eunuchs who are faithfully devoted to the God of Israel, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. This is one of the chief concerns of eunuchs or, or people looking at the plight of the eunuch in the Old Testament was they'll never have sons and daughters. They'll never have their name remembered. Because that's how your name is remembered in the biblical times was passed on through your descendants. And if you're a eunuch, you don't get that. And so Isaiah, God speaks directly to the eunuch, says, no, 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 don't say you're a dried up tree. Don't say it's over. Because if you hold faithfully to me, if you keep my covenant, if you walk in relationship with me, even you will receive an inheritance in my people. And even you will, that thing you long for or that think people think you should be longing for, you're going to get that. It's going to be in the kingdom, in the, in the new heavens and the new earth. You'll have, he goes on to say, I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus quoted that. The sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, 
I will gather still others besides those already gathered. God's saying, when my kingdom comes, there's going to be place for Gentiles. There's going to be even place for eunuchs, the sexual or the, the gendered other, the gendered minority. Old Testament makes a space that looks forward to a day that that's going to be a promise. New Testament then, we see that fulfilled. One of the first Gentiles who hears the gospel just happens to be an Ethiopian eunuch, Acts chapter 8. And so there is the fulfillment. It's like, it's like God's pointing through Jesus, is pointing back to the Old Testament saying, it's time, it's happening now, so even eunuchs can be part of my kingdom. What does that tell us today? Well, it tells us that no one, transsexual, gay, lesbian, bisexual, any category we want to put people in, no one is outside of the grace of God. No one is denied access to God's love. No one is denied access to being part of the people of God just by virtue of who they are. Now, does having access or being part of God's people have requirements on their part? Absolutely. God says, those who hold fast to my commandments, those who keep my Sabbaths. That, was, that meant those who live in relationship to God under the covenant stipulations in the Old Testament. Well, in the New Testament, the covenant stipulations now are the, the covenant with Jesus. The law of Christ is our covenant obedience today. So if somebody is a eunuch, can they enter the kingdom of God? Absolutely. In fact, God is calling people into his kingdom. There, there will be transgendered people in the New Jerusalem, but not because of their transgenderism. It'll be in spite of whatever they've experienced or done in this life that blurred the distinction between male and female. But, but God, that's going to be all of our stories. All of us in some way have gone astray. All of us in some way have committed things that... that are against the will of God. But that doesn't preclude us from being able to come to God in repentance and to be restored and to experience a relationship with him. So why would we put that as a barrier between God and anybody else? So that's a position, I think a biblical position. The two errors, again, this podcast, we're all about balance. The two errors that people go to, the first error is the fundamentalist or the bigot, the transphobic error that says, well, if you're into any of that, if you're, you know, you're having gender dysphoria, you're transgender, you've taken hormone blockers, you, you haven't done that yet, but you're going, any of that, you got to fix yourself before God will take you and before God will accept you. Well, no, that's false. That's a false heresy. No one has to fix themselves before God will receive them as his child. God does the fixing. The Holy Spirit does the sanctifying. We are called to repent and to cry out to God and to turn to him and to offer him our entire life and say, I'll do what I can, just save me. And then God begins to work with us where we are. That's so, so the right wing, the, the transphobic error is that that cuts you off from God's grace. Well, the other error is just as insidious. And I see it a lot in Methodist circles because I'm, I'm United Methodist and our denomination is about to split very soon. COVID prevented it this year, but it probably would have happened um, over issues involving partially gender identity and the authority of scripture and what it says. And I hear from people in Methodist circles that say, no, God has no gender. God doesn't care about gender. Uh, what you're born with is not your gender identity, sexually speaking. It's whatever you choose to embrace 
and and God celebrates the journey of transgender uh, of of whatever, however you want to express that, whether you get surgery, whether you don't get surgery, whether you just live this way, whether you don't, God celebrates it. And, and so they completely negate God's call to biblical holiness in the sense of maintaining the male and female aspect of the image of God in favor of just saying, well, it's all good. You know, God, God just wants you. And they, you know, if you're gay, if you're lesbian, if you're trans, if you're bi, if you're poly, if you're uh, any of the acronym letters, it's okay. God celebrates all that. He doesn't. You can't make scripture say that he does. We have to face it at the end of the day that God does have an ethic that involves gender and more importantly, sexuality, but sexuality is another discussion. So this is, as Christians, how do we deal with this? Well, we tread lightly. We hold fast to what we know, that there are distinctions between male and female. And that's not a bigoted thing to say. Now, we may very well carry that distinction out in a way that is bigoted, and we should be against that. Christians should be the first to call out genuine bigotry. There should never be somebody who's assaulted, who's made to feel intentionally unsafe, who is attacked because of their gender identity. But at the same time, we have to say, your gender identity is not what you choose it to be. It is intrinsically linked to what your DNA is. Now, your dysphoria that you feel, we want to work with you on that. We want to figure out a way to, that you can live a thriving life to as much as possible, just like somebody with any other uh, um, disability born with any other condition. They have to figure out ways to cope with whatever it is, whether it's mental uh, afflictions, whether it's physical handicaps. People are born with those, and there's no shame in that. No shame whatsoever. And so if you're born with spina bifida, your life is going to be different than people who are not, which is the majority of the population. But it's no less important. You're no less the image of God. This part of being in a fallen world is the experiences of things not being the way they should be. And so your life is going to be difficult in some ways. But what we're going to do is we're going to work with you to be as caring and as loving as we can within your differences and to not intentionally alienate you, to not intentionally antagonize you. We're not going to put you forward as a casualty in a culture war. If you come to me and you genuinely have gender dysphoria, I'm going to pray with you. I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to talk with you. I'm going to figure out with you solutions of how you can live in a way that you are every day not wanting to get up and kill yourself. And does that mean that you get procedures? Does that mean you get surgery? Does that mean you have people affirm you? I don't know. I don't know at this point. I'd need to hear your story. I would need to know what your life is like. I would need, there's no across the board, one size fits all. And that's the danger of activism. That's the danger of people who just make these, these politically motivated uh, decisions of bathroom bills or Title IX uh, doing the, away the distinction between men and women's sports or just saying you can do whatever you identify as. Um, because what that does is creates unfairness and creates harm and creates lack of safety for a lot more people then would just be affected by the person who's dealing with that issue as an individual. So these sweeping cultural reforms, a lot of times, as well-meaning as they are, can be incredibly dangerous and have unintended consequences that people are right 
to be afraid of. If you're able to simply say, I identify, I self-identify as female, so therefore you can't prevent me from using the girl's shower at the local Y or at the swimming pool or at the fitness center or at the sauna, and I will go in there because I self-identify and I, it, you just have to deal with it. And if a little girl's in there changing or a woman is in there in a state of undress, too bad because it's my right to be in. No, it's not your right. It's really not. There are other ways to make you safe that don't involve making other people unsafe as well. And we have to balance those rights. And they won't be the same everywhere. There will be need for accommodations but not at the expense of the God-given distinction between male and female that makes us human. That is something we can't, we, we can never, we can't give that up. If you're not a believer and you're listening to me and you're saying, well, Christians just need to get with it, we're never going to get with that. We're never going to get with eliminating the distinction or celebrate. We are going to celebrate the distinctions between male and female. What I, have, what I worry about, we'll end it with this. We're right at an hour now. What I worry about is in our culture today, girls, girls have it hard enough as it is growing up as a girl. And there's a lot of self-loathing that, that I've heard from my female friends talking about growing up as little girls. Um, there's a lot of like wishing that you didn't experience things the way you did. And especially once you get into the years where you're starting to hit puberty and things are really changing and hormones are really going and there's, there's just, and the world is already in a large degree patriarchal. So it's hard to be a girl becoming a woman and there's bodily expectations and there's sexual expectations and there's societal expectations of how you should and shouldn't live. Be polite. Don't speak up for yourself. Don't be assertive. Be a good little girl. You know, there's all of this stuff and it's real. What I worry is a lot of girls going through that stage, if they start hearing the message, and they are, it's already happening. There was an article in the Atlantic about this very thing from a non-Christian source psychologist who was saying, girls are hearing, well, when you experience that bodily discomfort, that's because you really are gender dysphoria. You're really a, a boy. You're not a girl. And immediately then it associates this, these feelings of discomfort with, oh, I must be a boy because I'm not comfortable being a girl. And so rather than alleviating the problems that girls face, the, there's a danger in trans activism taken to a full extreme that associates discomfort with your own body with, oh, well, you must be secretly a boy. Or inwardly a boy. And so then therapy is, is people start doing therapy and you start doing hormonal treatments and then ultimately irreversible surgical procedures. And even after surgical procedures, the suicide rate doesn't really go down. That's the scary thing. And so you have parents that are, that are not pushing, but guiding their kids down these paths that nature and biology is saying, no, this is not what you were created to be. And so you, it's just, it's getting a little, it concerns, it concerns me. Not minimizing that there are legitimate people who actually experience what is psychologically classified as gender dysphoria. That's a real thing. But I don't think everything going on right now is tied to that necessarily. And I don't have any statistical, I can't pull studies out of my pocket and say this is why this is. it's just a concern 
It's a legit concern. It's worth talking about. And even secular psychologists are talking about it. So how much more should we be comfortable talking about it? Uh, all right, we're right at an hour, so we're going to cut it this time. This question, if you hopped on looking for a quick answer, sorry, but not really sorry. I mean, that's what we do. We discuss and unpack things, and some questions don't have quick answers. They should stimulate further thinking, not, oh, okay, well, that's the answer. Let me move on to the next thing. So sit with this. Look at the passages in Scripture where God addresses the sexually other. Look what Jesus says about eunuchs. Look what Isaiah says about eunuchs. Look at the male and femaleness throughout Scripture from beginning to end. Look at the ways God is described in terms that are male sometimes, and he's also described in terms that are female sometimes, because both male and female reflect God's image. Um, let that inform all of how you think about how you approach this issue, and if you're not a Christian, Avoid the temptation to jump on anybody who disagrees with you as being hateful and realize that there can be uh, legitimate reasons for people to not be part of a social bandwagon that have nothing to do with hating people or wanting to see people that are hurt. And lastly, if you are someone watching this or listening to this podcast and you struggle with issues of gender identity, whether you are a trans individual whether you are considering, whether you're just wondering, whether you have family, whatever. Um, if you need somebody to talk to, don't just sit there and, and think, well, it's hopeless or my life sucks or nobody will listen to me or whatever. If you need somebody to talk to, message me. Contact me through the Disciple Dojo page. And if it's something that you need psychological help, I'm not equipped to do it, but I can put you in touch with people who will help you in this regard, or who at least will sit and walk with you. If nothing else, I'll listen to you. And, and I'll be a voice of friendliness and support and advocacy. Even if we don't agree with the political outcome, even if we have different views of how we think society should be built around concepts of gender, I'm telling you as honestly as I can tell you, I will be for you in the sense of you as a person because you do bear God's image. Whether male, female, or anything in between that you've become, you still are a reflection of the image of God. He loves you. I love you. And there's, there's nothing but a desire to give your life fullness and wholeness. So do not hesitate to reach out to me if that's the case. Um, all right, we're going to wrap it up. Guys, we're going to be back next Tuesday at noon. We may do one this weekend. I'm not sure yet. Uh, my mom's birthday is coming up, so I, I'm going to be spending that with her this weekend. But there may be time for, for a quick uh, dojo discussion. So that's how you need to stay tuned to my Facebook page so that you don't miss the live episodes. But we will be back next Tuesday for another question. Submit your questions. If you have questions that you want answered, write them to me. Either send them to me in a DM, go to disciplodojo.org slash contact, submit a question there. This video will stay up on Facebook Live so you can access it if you want to share it with friends or somebody else. But the audio from this will be put on the Disciple Dojo podcast. So discipledojo.org slash podcast. Sign up, subscribe to any one of the four podcasts. We're on Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. So pick one, subscribe. That really helps us. If you like this podcast or this discussion, write a review. That really, really helps us. And uh, other than that, you guys have a great week.